was yesterday and today, uh, 85 years ago, that uh, Kristallnacht took place. And if you look at what's going on around the country and around the world right now, uh, anti-Semitism, including violent incidents of anti-Semitism, are not ancient history, not by a long while. And it probably makes sense to review exactly what went on there, discuss it, discuss what the legacy of Kristallnacht has been. And uh, we have a tremendous expert in all things related to the Holocaust, the author of the book, How Could This Happen?, explaining the Holocaust. He's also a political expert, a former professor. And a prosecutor. Very pleased to welcome back into the studio one of my favorite guests, Dan McMillan. Dan, it's great to see you. It's, it's great to be with you again, Frank. Dan, for people that have no knowledge of history, they uh, woke up just yesterday from a, uh, uh, a Rip Van Winkle-like stupor for the last hundred years. Okay. What was Kristallnacht? So the, the name Kristallnacht means crystal night. And it refers to the shattered plate glass windows of shops owned by Jewish citizens of Nazi Germany. And it was uh, – there had been random acts at the local – sort of local level of violence against Jews during the five years after Hitler took power in January of thirty-three, But this was government organized and state-sanctioned. State sort of orders went out to the Nazi party from – uh, Josef Goebbels in Berlin uh, in the late evening of November 9th, and members of Nazi party organizations, the SS and also the Brown Shirts, uh, dressed in plain clothes, fanned out all over Germany. Um, they burned this, a synagogue in every town that had one, 267 synagogues uh, all told. They were dressed in plain clothes because they wanted to create the impression that this was a spontaneous outburst. By the German people. That these were regular citizens doing this, not government employees. That's right, yeah. But that wasn't the case. Well, there were thousands of Germans who did join in, uh, although the best – we do have a lot of information about the reaction of German public opinion. Uh, Overwhelmingly, Germans condemned uh, the violence, although there's some disagreement as to what exactly bothered them about it. In any case, it was really a turning point. Because it was once it made very clear it was and this was also part of the intention to make it very clear to German and Austrian Jews they needed to get out of the country as soon as possible. The the policy of the regime was to try to get rid of its Jewish population by making their lives so miserable that they would leave. Uh, the government also hoped essentially to to sort of frighten foreign governments enough and foreign countries enough that that they, including our country, would open their doors to uh, Jewish emigrants from Germany, which did not happen. And so a lot of the, you know, all, most German and Austrian Jews wanted to get out, but a lot of them, they couldn't, we wouldn't let them in. You know, Britain, every, no one would let them in, in fact. Um, in any case, it was, it was also a kind of a clear sign to the German people that this is one area of government policy that you did not criticize. Um, because there was actually uh, – Germans did criticize or push back against a number of policies of the Nazi regime, but it was very clear this is a top priority for Hitler, for the Nazi party, and anyone who sort of got in the way themselves, who even seemed unenthusiastic on the street, risked getting hmm. beat up as well. What had – I know you mentioned mm-hmm. other incidents less severe before mm-hmm. this – 
in the five mm. years under Nazi Germany uh, before this, what were things mm. like before that for the citizens and for Jews specifically prior to Kristallnacht? What were things like? Were uh, they forced to wear Jewish stars or anything along those lines? Uh, the Jewish no, the, the, the yellow star was introduced in in October of 1941, um, in the fall of 1941, and that's really when they began. Uh, that was short, sort of preparatory, but they began mm-hmm. just deporting Jews to the east to their deaths uh, in ghettos and extermination camps. Life in Nazi Germany was a mixture, really, of of terror for certain targeted groups: communists, socialists. And increasingly, Jews on and and clearly, you know, political dissent could get you into a great deal of trouble. On the other hand, in some ways, life seemed to be getting a lot better for most Germans uh, because Hitler pumped so much money into rearming Germany because he was planning on another world war. Um, so this, it was kind of like. Uh, well, it was just that so much money was being pumped into the economy. The German economy reached full employment by 1937, whereas we didn't get to full employment really until um, until uh, armament spending in World War II in 1941. Uh, so there's sort of a mix in a lot of ways from the perspective of, of ordinary Germans who whose information is limited because all media are state-controlled. It seemed in many ways that their lives were improving um, and – also, the groups, for example, the persecution of communists was something that most Germans welcomed because they were very much afraid of the communists. So, but the and but for Jewish Germans, uh, the screws were sort of gradually tightened. There was just uh, a wave of discriminatory legislation in 1935. They were stripped of their German citizenship, uh, beginning sort of in 37, going into 38. Uh, increasing pressure to sell their businesses, so they were being essentially impoverished, uh, and their lives were being made increasingly impossible in Germany. What happened after Kristallnacht? Between Kristallnacht and uh, 1941, uh, October of 1941, what happened? I mean, uh, I would think that uh, this was a message to those who were able to leave town to leave town. But what was life like for Jews that remained? Well, it was it was absolutely miserable, and those who remained increasingly were were forced into kind of group settings. You might think of sort of dormitories of sorts, or sort of single room occupancy kind of hotels that they refer to as Jew houses. Uh, social contact increasingly was just completely cut off between uh, Jewish Germans and. Um, you know, many other you know, Germans, Gentiles who had before been friends or co-workers with whom they'd had connections. In the in the government's policy, there's, there's a radicalization from the the plan originally was we just want to get – we is to get all Jews out of German society because it was believed that they were divisive. Jews were – and this was not just in Germany. This is a widespread belief throughout uh, – throughout Europe and also in our country, uh, that Jews were responsible for Marxism. They divided German society against itself with the Marxist theory of class struggle. So Germany needed to expel its Jewish population. Um, But then as Germany conquered parts of Eastern Europe, particularly conquering Poland in the fall of 1939, 
suddenly then they came under, you know, two million Polish Jews came under their control. And from that point forward, immigra- forced immigration was no longer a possibility. No one was going to take all of them. And that was at that point the German policy began to evolve in a, in a genocidal direction. They began to think about expelling them to some kind of reservation, uh, first in Poland and then when they made uh, when they planned the invasion of the Soviet Union in this, which took place in June of 1941. Um, then as the, you know, following behind the, the German armies, as they advanced into the Soviet Union, they had mobile shooting squads. So they just began murdering uh, the Jewish populations in their wake, you know, by mass shooting. And that's kind of over that, you know, from there until October 41, that policy radicalized until, they arrived at what was, you know, unprecedented uh, and unparalleled ever since then was a policy, the, the goal of, of murdering every single person of mm. Jewish ancestry in Europe. One of the things that's distinctive about the Holocaust is that the Jews were the only ethnic group targeted for, targeted for complete biological extinction, for complete eradication. One of the questions that you deal with a bit in your book, and uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dan McMillan. He's the author of the book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust is why this occurs. Why were why were the Jews the scapegoat for Hitler and the Nazis? And what was the motivation behind Goebbels to... Uh, go forward with this incident, the burning down of synagogues and all the other destruction that happened at Kristallnacht. What was the strategic objective behind it, and was it successful from their point of view? Well, it it was successful in a number of ways. It intimidated the Gentile German population. It sort of made clear to everyone, "This this is one area where you do not push back against what the government does. Um, and then as, as the war, you know, as the war developed and as information, lots of information filtered back into Germany about the murder of, um, Jewish populations in the East behind the lines of, uh, of the Russian front, increasingly, it seems that the German people just decided to tune this out. They decided this is nothing we can do anything about, um, and for other reasons as well, and so whereas there was widespread dismay and it seems great feelings of shame among the German people over what was being done to their Jewish neighbors, when when the killing really started, it seems that the response was really just one of cold indifference. Mm. At that point, the, uh, whatever – you know, sympathy they had was in some way uh, was in some way suppressed. You ask, sort of, what was the the motive behind it? Again, I think that uh, the beginning in German politics in the eighteen nineties, but this was this was widespread throughout Europe and also in our country. Jews were blamed for Marxism, and so the you could say that the number one reason for the Holocaust, at least the stated reason, to all the people who were carrying out the killing and the justification that was offered to the German people for um, for the murder of the Jewish people was that if, if, we, can, if we can eradicate the Jews, we can permanently um, eliminate the threat of communist revolution. 
Are there any notable instances of non-Jewish individuals or non-Jewish communities or activist groups that actively resisted the anti-Semitic violence during Kristallnacht? Actively resisting, no. It was, I mean, it was, it was sort of very, I mean, the, these crowds would gather because it, well, because in your, you know, in your neighborhood, you'd hear the fire alarms and you'd hear all this violence in the street sure. and the smashing the shop windows and crowd, you know, large crowds of ordinary citizens who were Gentiles, not Jewish, would gather. But if if you even showed significant dismay, you already ran. I mean, there was already massive intimidation by the people who was who were carrying out um, the rioting. What's also so no, there wasn't really any resistance. Um, one thing that's also really really striking about the about the riding Kristallnacht is just their gratuitous sadism, sort of the way because they would, they didn't just burn the synagogues; they would go into the homes of of their Jewish neighbors and these you know Nazi toughs in plain clothes would rouse them, bring them into the street and sort of abuse them publicly. There was one incident where they they broke into the synagogue before burning it mm. and um this, you know, thug climbed up on the roof with the scrolls of the Torah and said you can you can wipe your behinds with this, you know, before tossing it into the fire. It's been described as a degradation ritual wow. that played out across Germany. So what what can you tell us about the international community? How did the international community respond to Kristallnacht both in terms of uh, diplomatic action and public sentiment? And if through the prism of hindsight, were there I know you mentioned the refugee uh, issue, but were there missed opportunities for more significant intervention internationally? Well, I don't know about intervention in the sense of actually taking action against Germany to prevent this from happening. Um, but there, there was, of course, the opportunity. There would have been the opportunity to open, open your doors to, to these refugees. Mm. Uh, but that really did not happen. It was interesting. There was actually, in the summer of that year, at Franklin Roosevelt's initiative, there was a conference at Evian in France to talk about the the persecution of Jews in Germany, but in the outset, even before at the invitation, Roosevelt said, "But of course, none of none of the the countries attending, including ours, is expected to change their immigration laws." Mm. And in our country, we had very strict immigration laws that were introduced in 1924 that were designed essentially to choke off. Uh, well, immigration from Eastern Europe and also Jewish immigration uh, as well. And those laws were not changed in our country. And, um, yeah, there was there were expressions of sympathy after Kristallnacht, but action really was lacking. did not follow. It's 85 uh, years later. There have been a lot of instances of violence, a lot of instances of anti-Semitism, both uh, during the Holocaust and certainly after why does it still matter? Why should we still talk about this 85 years later? What's the legacy of Kristallnacht? Well, I think that I think that it it's the legacy of Kristallnacht and I think of then the 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 genocide that followed upon it um is I think the most important of aspect of it for me is is a warning that we cannot take for granted the value that our civilization places on human life. 
one of the, what really sort of marks the Holocaust and sets it apart from you know from all other mass killings in history, all other episodes of persecution or, or genocide or massacre, is that this was the moment in history where human life lost all value. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've I've struggled for for decades on on how to explain the Holocaust, and it it gets you so easily get sort of bogged down in the weeds of sort of the long political narrative. What went wrong in German politics so that something like the Nazi movement could arise, and someone like Hitler could take power, and you know the Treaty of Versailles and World War One, and so on and so forth. That it's kind of easy to it, – it was only recently that I came to see in a way what I think is the most important cause uh, of the Holocaust. It happened above all because the people who did this saw no reason to not do it, by which I mean that they – that the ruling class of our most advanced society had come to decide and, and indeed sort of proudly and explicitly affirm that an individual human life – has no value whatsoever. Jewish life was considered less than worthless mm. because Jews were thought to be biologically a separate species um, from from Germans or from any other ethnic group that they were – and they, they viewed them as really vermin in human form. But on the other hand, even German life was without value. They murdered two, as many as 200,000 of their own people, uh, Germans with disabilities – really just for national efficiency to save money. Wow. Um, and there was about another 6 million Gentile victims of the Nazis, 3.3 million Soviet POWs who died in German captivity, about 2 million Christian Poles in addition to the 3 million Jewish Poles. And if we could get 15 or 20 of these killers around around a table, if we could go back in time and we would ask them, why in heaven's name are you doing something so cruel – um, dollars to donuts, I think the answer we would get would be a shrug of the shoulders and they'd ask us, well, why not? They're just people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't see that happening easily in another human society. Well, in another – in an advanced society like ours or Germany, any of our friends or allies, the world's capitalist democracies, it's very hard to see that again. I mean a full-blown genocide like that. On the other hand, when I look at the at the coming decades, you know, you've got large parts of the world that are that are already overpopulated. You're looking at threats to the already inadequate supplies of food and water from the impacts of climate change. And we're going to be looking, we're already starting to see huge numbers of desperate refugees from climate change. Soon it's going to be tens of millions, it's going to be hundreds of millions. Uh, one estimate by the UN was that by the end of the century, we could be looking at 2 billion wow. climate change refugees. And then the question is, we, we can't – we're not going to let them all into our country. They'd swamp the lifeboat. Or we will think they are – you know, how many can we rescue by letting them aboard? How many will we feel is too many that swamps the lifeboat or just – and then the question is, what kind of violence will we use to keep these desperate people out? And how is that going to put downward pressure on the value that we place upon human life? So this example of the Holocaust, I think for me, it's just sort of a – it's a marker that we must never lose sight of. 
If people are interested in learning more, uh, you could read Dan's book. It's called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. It's available on Amazon and uh, most places that uh, books are available. Uh, Dan, let me ask you, uh, completely unrelated to Crystal Knight, but while I have you here, you are the, we've talked about this several times before, you're the founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America, which is trying to completely reform the campaign finance system as we know it. Uh, how do you view the conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried in the context of campaign finance reform? And do you believe that his conviction is going to have any sort of ripple effect on a broader conversation about political funding? Or is this just an, an example of uh, somebody that was crooked doing crooked things? I think I think that the Bank from Bankman-Fried case... Uh I think the you know Menendez the Menendez case with this guy acting like a gangster with half a million dollars mm. in cash and gold bars in his home, um, campaign just ever more brazen violations of campaign finance laws or skating very close to the edge. The DeSantis campaign has been especially aggressive. I think there's a culture of increasing brazenness in Washington. Um, is you that know, because of what the Supreme Court's done on uh, Citizens United or other factors? Well, th- that is kind of the enabling factor, and it goes all the way back to the 70s. Yeah, the court decided that in its infinite wisdom that this money spent to influence elections is free speech, mm-hmm. so you can't limit it. But and that is that is one of the preconditions that's made it possible, you know, for the last – in the last three federal cycles, each shattered private fund, fundraising records – um, and now the demands of fundraising are so extreme. This is really the principal talent that a politician has to have, the principal obligation um, that they must perform in order to, to be in public office. And now I think the folks in Washington have gotten so far removed from us because they their they're constituents are their donors. And so I think the lack of it's just sort of the lack of respect for the American people on the part of the political class in Washington is being taken to new lows. Mm. And people taking all this money from Bank from Freed and then just an obvious quid pro quo, we're not going to regulate crypto. <laughs> I mean, it's just the straight line is so obvious. It is so flagrantly corrupt. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of a <clears throat> it's a trivial example, but I think it's part of the culture of entitlement. And just complete lack of standards in Washington, just the fact that at one point, you know, Schumer wanted to abandon the dress code in the Senate because uh, Fetterman wanted to show up in a hoodie and shorts. And it's like, really? (laughs) That's that's not – I mean I send you to Washington to represent me and you can't be bothered to treat me with the respect this office deserves. That in a way is just an example of how thoroughly out of touch they've gotten. How do you think uh, the conviction of a prominent figure like Bankman Freed might impact the public's trust in the campaign finance system and campaign finance reform efforts more broadly? Well, I think it's it's just another data point that we can sort of marshal in talking about it. I think that I think things had to get this bad before it's possible for us to turn it around Mm -hmm. and for we the people. Um, to take our country back, to take our government back. And I'm actually each – when I look at – well, at these and also just generally the way that the 
just we, we hit a new milestone in dysfunction in our federal government, kind of with every passing week, right? You know, right. That, you know the, not having a Speaker of the House for three weeks, but and then earlier playing chicken with defaulting in the national debt. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. The point is, I guess I'm saying is that our the American political system is breaking down in real time before our very eyes. And I think for that reason, it is going to be possible going forward to rally Americans of all political stripes for a solution to this problem. And if I may, the, you know, the solution that, that we advocate, which we call voter-owned elections, is simply since the only people with any, any juice in Washington are high-dollar campaign donors like Sam Bankman-Fried and numerous others – we make ourselves the donors where the government gives every registered voter an allotment of campaign cash to give to candidates. That will, that will be a game changer. And I think that things in a way had to get, you know, Americans have been saying for, for a long time, this isn't working. We've been saying for a long time, we want fundamental change. And I think now we can go to the public and say, okay, mm. you want change. This clearly is not working. The system is falling up. It's in moments like crisis that you have transformation. And that's why I've never been more really confident that we can turn this around. Well, it, certainly something has got to uh, break at exactly. some point. It's, it's uh, if people give. want to learn more about uh, your campaign finance efforts, they can go to savedemocracyinamerica.org. That's savedemocracyinamerica.org. Dan McMillan, thanks so much for the time this morning. Thank you so much, Frank. Always a pleasure to be with you. All right. I'll take uh, some of your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.